With this podcast, I want to choose the topics that I think are of the utmost importance to Dharma practitioners, and thus the world as a whole, but with the Dharma that has been handed down to us from Shakyamuni, being the cohesive and well-formed body of material that it is, it is not possible to cherry-pick one Dharma as superior to the others, or in any single Dharma to leave out any of the practices of study, reflection, and meditation, the paramitas, the conduct, every bit is as necessary as the others. But this episode's topic stands out to me as perhaps the single greatest dharma that will ensure the survival of this ancient tradition by generating enlightened beings, and that is the Shurangama Mantra. It is the longest mantra slash dharani in the Buddhist canon, making it difficult to practice, let alone memorize. Yet those who strive to uphold this dharma are the champions of the Triple Realm. Let's join the Shurangama Assembly and fathom the Shurangama, king of mantras, rarest in the world, the supreme dharani for the benefit of all sentient beings. What we need is a Buddha-verse emerging. In other words, we need nirvana emerging. It's called enlightenment. to succeed. No one wants to be considered a failure, by yourself or by others. To the degree that we are driven by our desire to succeed, we will employ, to the best of our ability, techniques and practices that will bring us closer to our object of desire. Now what science has emphatically and empirically demonstrated, and the confusion that philosophy has been aiming at since the first question was asked, is the fact that all observation and designation of the experiences of our life are entirely subjective and entirely semantic. You've never experienced anything outside of your own perceptions. In fact, it's not possible for a mind to have any experience that does not arise in and consist of the constituents of that mind. I love making grandiose blanket statements about reality, and Buddhism is great for that. But more importantly, Buddhism is good for pointing out the fact that there has never been a definitive statement about anything. And the conceptual overlay of the distinction-making mind is only that. So essentially, the world of phenomena that we are now experiencing is grounded on, based upon, originates from the stories that we tell ourselves, the language that we use, and the concepts that we believe in. To a Buddhist, there are two types of pursuits in life that one wishes to succeed in, worldly and transcendental, samsaric and dharmic, practical and useless, as Zongsar Kensei would say, illusory and genuine, non-path and path, mundane and supramundane. A normie wishes to be happy, but by pursuing material wealth, good taste, good company, affection from others, health and shelter, dare I say opulence, excess, security, the worldly person wants to have good things in life and does not wish to receive the conventionally regarded misfortunes. Thus, we wish each other, have a good day. Happy New Year. Hope you get rich. May peace be with you. When someone loses a loved one, it is proper conduct to express grievance. And when someone gets a new job, we tell them, congratulations, you deserve it. And for the vast majority of people, this is as far as their wisdom will go. Fortune is a blessing and suffering is a curse. 
for the dharmic person, and I'm saying dharmic person and not Buddhist because A, I don't like the term, and B, not all Buddhists think this, but wisdom has shown them an alternative story to characterize the events of one's life. For the dharmic person, what is seen as pleasurable is actually an encumbrance to deeper understanding of reality. The seeing of impermanence, of interdependence, of emptiness or shunyata should be at the forefront of one's modality of practice, and commitment to seeing through the veil of supposed concreteness is what delineates a dharma practitioner. To go beyond relative concepts and ultimate concepts, relative existence and ultimate existence, to turn all of life into the path, to see things as empty of inherent nature, to undo our conceptual conditioning to the point where ultimate truth is revealed. And in this process, misfortune becomes the path. Misfortune highlights impermanence. Impermanence reveals the truth, and truth sets one free. So with the element of path, misfortune becomes fortune. Misfortune remains as misfortune if path is not involved. And in fact, fortune, devoid of path, the getting of the things that one wants, can be considered misfortune because no truth is revealed in this. And when one eventually loses the thing, as you eventually will, nothing has been learned and the sense of loss is aggravated by continued clinging and according to Buddha results in further rebirth suffering and death, as an animal, god, ghost, demon, hell-being, or human, the human being the least likely of these six. If truth is seen, fortune and misfortune are both impermanent. From this point of view, what is left in life but to further pursue truth, to refine one's concentration, discernment, bliss, awareness, and realization for the benefit of all? The truth of the lack of solidity or concreteness in life is what accords most closely with our experience of things. All things are shifting and evolving, coming into being, dwelling in a state of flux, and then perishing. We exist betwixt the realm of ephemeral subatomic mist that seems to consist of merely bits of information and the beginningless and endless expanse of so-called space-time, anomalous, ambiguous, dreamlike, and yet apparent, illuminated, undeniable, and at the same time speakable and still totally inexpressible. While being stuck in limbo of the micro and macro, we can and should develop a healthy skepticism of our suppositions, but at the same time a basic trust in our own cognizance and ability to know and reason. If I hold the view that all things are empty, this should be based on my experience. And likewise, if I hold the view of, say, nihilism, this reasoning should be based on experience and evidence as well. To do so otherwise would be dishonest. So in our quest for truth and authenticity, for wisdom and happiness, in our quest to help others and seek meaning and grace, it is necessary to have a method. So it is path, progressing on the path, success on the path, and increase in one's happiness in a wise fashion, happiness that is derived from within, happiness that comes from patience, tolerance, diligence, blamelessness, enthusiasm for life, happiness that comes from knowledge of truth, samadhi, concentration, happiness for no reason at all, that can't go away or be taken from you, that is the aim. The whole of Buddha Dharma in every organization and teacher dedicates their life to progressing on the path themselves and helping others to do the same. That is the point of the Sangha. They are like a general human support group of like-minded individuals that agree to look upon the world through the eyes of the Buddha to help each other wake up. We have this rare, and rare is not even an appropriate word, uh, it's more like an astronomically, ridiculously unlikely opportunity to wake up, and those that truly acknowledge this fact put forth effort to do so. 
And so, to this end, the Buddha provided us with 84,000 different methods to progressing on the path, depending on our differing abilities and temperaments, all moving toward its culmination of Buddhahood. The great Chan master Dogen, in his Shobogenzo, said, If you do not make the one matter for which you train the thing that you focus on, you will never make it to the unique wisdom. Dogen, in his mastery of language, stated that we must go beyond Buddhahood, but before we can go beyond, we must approach. And the road to Buddhahood is paved with study, reflection, ethics, meditation, wisdom, and transcendence of wisdom. So to realize this one matter, we will now study the Sharangama Mantra. One of the most advanced and demanding iterations of Buddha Dharma, the Vajrayana, or diamond or lightning vehicle, which promises to bring about Buddhahood in 1 to 16 lifetimes, is often called the Mantrayana, or Mantra Vehicle. This form of practice is way over the head of most Dharma practitioners, including myself, and is truly a marvel of the human intellect. So I won't pretend to be able to expound on this in a podcast, but heading in this direction, the whole of the Mahayana tradition employs mantra as a method for progressing on the path. The Sanskrit etymology of mantra is broken up into two parts, man, which means to think, mano, meaning thought or mind, intellect, as in mano vijnana, or mind consciousness, and the action suffix tra. The Oxford definition and common academic understanding of mantra is not only boring, but reductionist at best, and highly lazy and offensive at worst. Mantra in the Indic and Asiatic psyche has many levels of meaning and function, reaching far beyond mere incantations or magic spells to get fortune and avoid disaster, but in the most fundamental sense are syllabic representations of the elements that make up reality. The Sanskrit alphabet can be called Ali Kali and is made up of 16 vowels that are pronounced a-a, i-i, u-u, ri-ri, li-li, a-i, o-o, ang-a, and 34 consonants kakakagana, chajajadana, tatadadana, tatadadana, papababama, yara, lawashasha, sahaksha, that are inseparable from the vowels because no consonant has a sound without a vowel. So, for example, the O vowel paired with the consonants says kokogogono, chochojonono, totododono. And the E vowel says kekegegene, chechejedene, tetededene, and so on and so forth. And from combining these syllables, all possible combinations of sounds with the mouth can be made, and all possible diversities of the infinite universe can be delineated and expressed. Thus, the Sanskrit language has perhaps the largest bank of vocabulary known to humankind, and in fact is one of, if not the oldest and most mysterious languages. It is known as the language of the devas, or the gods, and according to the Vedas, the primary Indian canonical texts, it's held to be a primordial language, with no author, and intrinsically exists within the fabric of reality. Many parallels between Latin and Germanic languages are found by linguistic scholars, and let's remember that I am not a scholar, folks, but it's generally acknowledged that the Sanskrit language predates any historical record and its origins are unknown. The concept of mantra is a primary aspect of this language, which seems to have been engineered in its very structure and usage to point directly to the profound truths of reality that Indic civilization has based their philosophy and culture around. The conceptualizations of words like karma and dharma varied from one school of thought to the other in ancient India, but the role of mantra is universal. Mantra and dharani are often used interchangeably, but the etymological root of dharani, dr, like dharma, means to hold. 
This week's episode on the King of Mantras cannot unravel some of the ridiculously specific and dense literature about what exactly a mantra is and how it works, but for now I will give some generalizations and definitions. As Master Shunhua puts it, the Sharangama Mantra is the King of Mantras. It is extremely important. Students of the Buddha Dharma who can learn this mantra in their present lives will not have been born as a human in vain. From the glossary of the Sharangama Sutra by the Buddhist Text Translation Society, it states, In general, mantras are spoken phrases whose primary meanings are not cognitive, but whose meanings and powers lie on a spiritual level that transcends ordinary verbal understanding. According to the Rigpa Wiki, the definition is thus, Mantras are sacred syllables used in Vajrayana practice to protect the minds of practitioners from negativity in ordinary impure perceptions. The root of the Sanskrit terms are manas, meaning mind, and shra, meaning to protect. They also serve to invoke the yidam deities and their retinues. There are three types of mantras, secret mantra, knowledge mantras, and dharani mantras. Dharani refers to the four retentions as defined in the Dharma Samgraha by Master Nagarjuna. And the four retentions are thus, the Atma Dharani, the retention of oneself, Grantha Dharani, the retention of a book, Dharma Dharani, the retention of the Dharma, and Mantra Dharani, the retention of a spell. The 8th century Buddhist tantric master Kobodaishi Kukai drew a distinction between Dharani and Mantra and used it as the basis for his theory of language. Mantra is restricted to esoteric Buddhist practices, whereas Dharani is found in both esoteric and exoteric ritual. Dharanis, for instance, are found in the Pali Canon. From the Dictionary of Buddhist Terms, the term Dharani literally means retention and refers to a high level of mindfulness, or shmriti, and insight, prajna, derived from spiritual practice. In early Mahayana Buddhism, four categories were distinguished. The retention of patience, kshanti dharani. The retention of mantra, mantra dharani. The retention of words, pada dharani. The retention of meaning, artha dharani. Mantra dharanis were a mnemonic form of mantra designed to facilitate the retention of various teachings, often considered to be a summary version of long sutras. Later, with the rise of Tantric Buddhism, dharanis became indistinguishable from mantras in general, though they are generally of greater length than ordinary mantras and can largely be understood as normal speech. Based on these definitions, Taking a wild stab, I would categorize the Sharangama Mantra as a Mantra Dharani, as it is a summary of the Sharangama Sutra, but I will clarify this with my Rinpoche and let you all know if I am right. From the Buddhanu Shmiti, a glossary of Buddhist terms, the verbal meaning of the word Dharani is that which holds. It is a magical formula in the form of a mantra in Sanskrit. The mystic mantra has a potential to hold the Buddha's teachings in the heart of him who recites. It is recited in order to attain mindfulness, shmriti, power, bala, and wisdom, prajna. Its recitation brings in good luck such as a long life, victory, protection from snakes, and removes evil such as disease. The dharani mantras are used for the threefold purpose, namely incantation, benediction, and magic spell. Dharani mantras are prevalent in the tantric Buddhism of Tibet and in the Shingon sect of Buddhism in Japan. Since Dharanis are based on the occult power of sound, they do not have any verbal meaning. They contain seed syllables, or bija. The later Mahayana literature contains Dharanis. The Prajnaparamita Hridaya Sutra is used as a Dharani. In the ninth chapter of the Suvarna Prabhasa Sutra, 
Sri Mahadevi, the great goddess, glorifies the Suvarna Prabhasa Sutra as a Dharani. Thus, the Dharanis often form part of the Mahayana Sutras. However, independent works on Dharani, such as a large collection of Dharanis, are also found. The Dharani Mantra Samgraha is a collection of Dharanis. I found a lovely excerpt from Swami Muktananda's book, Where Are You Going?, explaining the power of mantra uh, that I'll paraphrase right now. A man walks into a crowd of one of his talks, raised his hand and said, How can just saying a word bring you closer to God? The Swami quickly and sharply responded, What do you know, you dumb son of a bitch? The man became enraged and began shouting back curse words. When the Swami let his rage pass, he calmly responded, Look at the great effect that a few curse words had on your mind. Now imagine how much effect saying the names of God will have on your mind. So that was all a bit of scholarly jargon that if you have the patience to listen to will give you an idea that the concept of mantra in Dharani is much more than frivolous wishful thinking or wizards mumbling gibberish at each other, which is the image that most of us have when we hear the phrase casting spells or chanting. But even the phrase casting spells gives us an idea of mantra, that to spell something out, to attribute language to the patterns of vibrations of quarks and photons that we perceive in a constant stream of consciousness, this creates the reality that we take to heart and establishes us in our worldview. Racist language creates racist worldview. Spiritual language gives us a spiritual worldview. Two people can look at the same image and one has a great attraction and reverence for the image while the other feels disgust and hatred towards it. It depends entirely on our lexicon and the values we ascribe to what we perceive. And that depends entirely on the education we receive, the people we have in our lives, the experiences we go through. So with regards to mantra, all language is mantra in that any entity that can be perceived can be named. I'm going to do an entire episode on mantra alone in the future, so check back for that. A mantra, if chanted with sincere regard, with intention for its effect, with single-pointed concentration, forsaking all other thought processes, can bring about profound changes in our character and can clear away obstacles to progressing on the path. But the practice itself should be an investigation into the nature of mind, a unification of mantra and reciter. Which brings us back to the 554-line Shurangama Mantra, the most extensive mantra in the Buddhist canon. This mantra has been lauded as the most efficacious practice to protect the Dharma, the self, and the world by all of the great masters of China for the last 1,300 years. So this Shurangama Mantra, the great white canopy of light Dharani Mantra, the Moha Saranto Bodola Tolo Nijo, the brilliant Buddha's crown, great white canopy of light, unsurpassed spiritual mantra, this mantra is given in the context of the Sarangama Sutra, which belongs to the Mahavaipulya, or Great Expansive Teaching category of Sutra, where a vast number of topics are covered and expounded so that the Sutra alone can be taken as the entire path. Because of the Sutra's presentation as a complete path, emphasis on the mantra, an esoteric overtone, this Sutra can be classified as Vajrayana, but really it transcends categories and opens the gate to Buddhahood to all who choose to enter. There have been hundreds of commentaries on the Sharangama Sutra written over the centuries, but as an American, in my experience, the commentary most comprehensive and best suited for this age is given by Master Shenhua, who will definitely get an entire episode to cover his life. His commentary fills eight volumes with extremely precise yet digestible line-by-line explanations of the text, and in my opinion is one of the crowning achievements in Buddhist, if not world history. 
I myself had the incredible privilege of attending a 10-day Sharangama Sutra study and practice intensive retreat with Master Hua's Dharma Realm Buddhist Association on the 50th anniversary of Master Hua's first teaching the Sharangama Sutra to an American audience, and the first time the sutra had come to this continent. And we covered the entire text as best we could while still sitting for five hours a day, but I have to say that this Sangha is absolutely incredible to be around. I've never felt the way that I've felt after being with them for 10 days, and it's very sad that I've not gotten back there yet. Uh, but the virtuous and scholarly, sincere, immaculate atmosphere that they carry out their activities with really puts you in a zone where you understand the meaning of practice. It was truly admirable the way not just senior monks and nuns and professors, but also graduate students of the Dharma Realm University gave lectures and presented the material of the sutra and actually brought it to life. I wish I had time to go into the details of that retreat more, but it was one of the most formative experiences of my life and it cemented my faith in the Buddha Dharma and in the Sangha. Who and this Sangha is like a jeweled victory banner indicating the Mahayana being firmly established in the U.S. I cannot stress that enough. So, of the 1,600 pages of Master Hua's commentary, I did my best to pull some of the most inspiring and clarifying information about the, what the mantra means to practitioners and Buddhism as a whole. Master Hua also has a line-by-line -line commentary on just the mantra alone, which I have not read, but I have been tuning into the class of the Sharanga man Mantra with Reverend Hung Chur, who is the senior most bhikshuni of that sangha and the, and the first ever ordained female monastic in, in the United States. And she's a living legend and a treasure to humanity. And she, like Master Hua, does not mince words. And when speaking about the Sharangama Sutra and Mantra, they deem its survival, both in its physical form and with its ideals being upheld in the minds of Buddhist practitioners, as congruent and essential to the very survival of Buddhism itself. So, part of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is faith that enlightenment is possible. The full awakening of a Buddha is something that exists in reality, and that it happened to Shakyamuni Buddha, and through his teachings it will happen to us all eventually. And if you are practicing with the inconceivable liberation as your intention, with the Mahayana spirit of bringing awakening to all beings, then it makes great sense upon reading the Sharangama Sutra, that this document is indispensable to the survival of a tradition that professes and delivers on such a lofty promise as the permanent end of suffering and awakening to true reality. From the Sharangama Sutra, a new translation by the Dharma Realm Buddhist Association, in the introduction to the sutra, it states, For over a thousand years, the Sharangama Sutra, which translates to the Sutra of the Indestructible, has been held in great esteem in the Mahayana Buddhist countries of East and Southeast Asia. In China, the sutra has generally been considered as important and has been as popular as the Lotus Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Mahayana Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Heart Sutra, and the Diamond Sutra. The appeal of the Sharangama Sutra lies in the broad scope of its teachings and in the depth and clarity of its prescriptions for contemplative practice. Because of its wealth of theoretical and practical instruction in the spiritual life, it was often the first major text to be studied by newly ordained monks, particularly in the Chan school. Much of the sutra is devoted to Buddha Shakyamuni's instruction to the monk Ananda, whose personal story provides a narrative frame for the entire discourse. 
Joined by several of his enlightened disciples, the Buddha shows Ananda how to turn the attention of his sense faculties inward in order to achieve a deeply focused state of meditation known as samadhi. He tells Ananda that by practicing a particular form of samadhi, the Sharangama samadhi, he and anyone else who maintains purity of conduct and develops right understanding can gain an awakening that is equal to the awakening experienced by all Buddhas. Dot, dot, dot. Whatever the historical origin and provenance of this text may ultimately be shown to be, if indeed the question about it can ever be definitively answered, one fact is not in dispute. The Sharangama Sutra has been widely accepted in China as canonical for well over a thousand years. Such acceptance reflects the view that a religious text's authoritativeness must be measured by its effectiveness as a guide to moral and spiritual practice. From this pragmatic and orthopraxic point of view, the Sharangama Sutra may be correctly deemed to be authentic simply because generations of advanced practitioners and their students and disciples have revered this text, have followed its instructions, and have explained it to others as trustworthy prescription for moral purification and spiritual advancement towards enlightenment. In the minds of many admirers, then, the sutra's validity and importance do not depend on whether the text actually represents a verbatim record of words spoken by the Buddha Shakyamuni in the Magadhan dialect of Sanskrit in what is now Uttar Pradesh, sometime in the 5th century BCE. From this point of view, uncertainty about the sutra's textual history is not a cause for any uncertainty about its ethical and spiritual truth. End quote. So, if Buddhahood is possible and the sutras are how we gain the knowledge to reach this goal, then this sutra is unique to the Buddha Dharma in its depth and practical application, in that it explains in detail all the necessary steps and gradual realizations that occur, the introspective and cognitive foundations of fathoming the mind, the true mind, the nature of mind, the, f the ground of mind, methods and practices that bring about progress and pitfalls and obscurations that occur on the path. Its importance to the Buddha Dharma is unquestionable, and thus its survival and propagation cannot be understressed. Again, I must, and I will, do an entire episode on the outline and topics covered in the Sharangama Sutra, probably multiple episodes, but I just want to focus on the mantra and why it should be a part of our practice as Buddhists. The essence, the integral takeaway of the entire sutra is encapsulated in the Sharangama Mantra. Quoting again from the Sharangama Sutra's A New Translation. At the heart of the sutra is the Sharangama Mantra. The sutra promises that the practice of reciting this mantra, in the context of other practices taught in the sutra, can succeed in eliminating whatever internal or external obstacles may lie in the way of spiritual progress. To this day, monks and nuns in the Chinese Buddhist tradition, as well as many practitioners among laity, recite this mantra every morning as an essential aspect of daily practice. So right now I'm going to pull a lot of quotes from the Sutra and Master Hua's commentary uh, that show how much he wanted us to be aware of the power of this mantra and the benefit that it can and does bring to the world. But to begin, I'll read a verse from the Venerable Ananda in the Sutra. Uh, who was the main recipient of the Buddha's teaching in the Sutra, where he praises the Sharangama Mantra, and from his new understanding of the path, makes a vow to achieve Buddhahood. Here we go. The deep and wondrous honored one, all-knowing, pure and still, Sharangama, king of the mantras, rarest in the world, extinguishing distorted thoughts from countless eons past, no need to wait forever to attain the Dharma body. I vow to reach enlightenment, and as a Dharma king, Return to rescue beings, countless as the Ganges sands. 
this deep resolve I offer in the myriad Buddha's lands, by this may I repay the kindness shown me by the Buddha. I ask the Buddha to be witness as I take this vow, to enter first the murky realms of the five turbidities. If even just one being still has not become a Buddha, then I will wait before I seek the leisure of nirvana. Greatest in valor and in power, great compassionate one, I pray you'll now eradicate the subtlest of my doubts and lead me quickly to attain supreme enlightenment and sit within the places for awakening everywhere. If emptiness should vanish, even that will never shake this Vajra solid vow. According to Master Shenhua, Nalanda Master Abbot Nagarjuna Bodhisattva brought the Sharangama Sutra in his Samadhi from the Naga Dragon Realm. Then the Indian translator Bhikshu Paramiti from India secretly brought the sutra to China, written and rolled up in silk strips and sewn into his arm. The mantra was, according to the opening chapter of the Sharangama Sutra, historically transmitted by the Buddha Shakyamuni to Manjushri Bodhisattva to protect Ananda before he became an arhat. It was again spoken in the Sharangama Sutra by Shakyamuni before an assembly of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, arhats, devas, and other of the Eightfold Division of Dharmapalas. The Sharangama Mantra extensively references Buddhist deities such as Manjushri, Mahakala, Sitatapatra, Vajrapani, the five Dhyana Buddhas, as well as Medicine Buddha and Vajradhara. It's often used for protection or purification by meditators and is considered to be part of Tantric Buddhism or Vajrayana. Based on Sanskrit comparative research by Nalanda tradition Shramanera Losang Jimpa, the Sharangama Mantra contains all of the major 32 tantric deities of the Nagarjuna introduced practice of the Guya Samaja highest yoga tantra sadhana contained in the Gelugpa tradition of Vajrayana Buddhism in Tibet. Thus, in many ways, one could say the Sharangama Mantra is the highest yoga tantra Vajrayana Buddhism buried within the Chinese Chan and Pure Land traditions. Thus, Master Hua called it the secret within the secret, the esoteric within the esoteric. Buddha Shakyamuni in the Sharangama Sutra, Chapter 8, says, Ananda, you have asked about guarding and focusing the mind, and I have now told you about the wondrous methods that will lead practitioners to enter samadhi. If you seek to become a bodhisattva, you must first follow the four instructions on purity so that your comportment may be as pure as the glistening frost. Then, very naturally, you will no more be able to commit the three errors of the mind and four errors of speech than a tree is able to leaf out in freezing weather. How could anything demonic happen to someone who faithfully follows the four instructions on purity, Ananda? How much more will the person be protected if his mind is not paying attention to sights, sounds, odors, flavors, tangible objects, or objects of cognition? As for people who cannot get rid of their stubborn habits, teach them to recite single-mindedly the mantra of supreme efficacy, which is called Maha Sitata Patra, the Great White Canopy. This is the mantra spoken by the Buddha, whom I make appear from my unconditioned mind. The Buddha who is seated invisibly to ordinary sight, amidst a blaze of light on a precious lotus flower at the crown of my head. So from this quote, we hear the Buddha tell Ananda that achieving shamatha is the first prerequisite to truly entering the path. And for us to fully achieve shamatha, or achieving the first jhana in a Pali context, to know what this means and how this is done, we should turn to any number of Lama Allen Wallace's extensive lectures and retreats at the Santa Barbara Institute for Contemplative Research website, where he gives very detailed teachings and explanations about how one goes about fully achieving shamatha and what that means in the context of authentic dharma. The links on the website will be provided. Next, the Buddha exhorts Ananda to maintain the four unalterable aspects of purity, which are explained in the sutra. 
and that Buddha tells Ananda and the rest of us who have not achieved Buddhahood to recite the Shurangama Mantra as the supreme method to quickly achieve our contemplative aspirations. The mantra is given in five divisions that Master Hua describes as thus. The sections of the esoteric mantra mentioned here are the five main divisions of the Shurangama Mantra. The subsections are smaller parts consisting of several lines each, such as the opening lines, Namo Saranto Suchi Doye Alahudi Samyo Samputo Che. The five sections of the mantra corresponds to the five regions, north, south, east, west, and center. There are five sections because there are five great demonic armies in this world. Buddhas occupy the five regions to suppress the demons. If there were no Buddhas, the demons could appear openly in the world. Within the five sections of the mantra, there are some 30 dharmas, and within these are more than a hundred further dharmas that can be discussed in detail. Five of the major kinds of these dharmas are as follows. Number one, dharmas for accomplishment. These cause people who recite the mantra to have success in their endeavors and to fulfill their vows and wishes. Uh, two, the dharmas that bring benefit. Reciters of this mantra bring benefit to themselves and to other people as well. Three, dharmas of hooking and summoning. These dharmas allow the reciter to summon weird beings, demons, and goats to capture them, no matter how far away the reciter may be. 4. Dharmas of subduing. Demons also make use of spiritual powers and mantras. When you recite your mantras, they recite their mantras. But the Shurangama mantra can defeat all their mantras. The Matanga woman's spell that got Ananda in trouble lost its power as soon as the Shuranga mantra was recited. Particularly, because of the great five-line heart of the mantra, Chitoni, Ujala, Miliju, Boli Danlaye, Ningjili. This is the mantra for destroying the mantras and spells of celestial demons and followers of wrong paths. 5. Dharmas that prevent disaster. Any calamity that is to occur can be prevented by this mantra. For instance, someone who is about to fall into the ocean and drown can avoid catastrophe by reciting the Shurangama mantra. He might fall into the ocean, but he won't drown. Perhaps you are in a boat, and by any measure ought to sink. But you recite this mantra, and the boat does not go down. Maybe you're in an airplane that is destined to crash, but you recite the mantra, and the plane lands without incident. Usually what happens is there is alarm, but no danger. In general, the mantra contains dharmas of auspiciousness. This means that when you recite the mantra, everything goes just as you would like. There are so many advantages to the mantra, that in several years one could not even get close to expressing them all. End quote. From Volume 1 of Master Hua's Shurangama Sutra Commentary. This mantra, with its subtle, wonderful divisions and phrases, gives birth to all Buddhas of the Ten Directions. Therefore, the Shurangama Mantra can be called the Mother of Buddhas. Because the thus-come-ones of the Ten Direction use this mantra heart, they realize unsurpassed proper in all-pervading knowledge and enlightenment. It is by means of the Shurangama Mantra that the Buddhas realize proper knowledge and all-pervading awareness. Proper knowledge means that they know the mind gives rise to myriad dharmas. All-pervading awareness means that they know that the myriad dharmas come only from the mind. So my commentary on this commentary should be humble and limited, but this statement by Master Hua is a doozy. He's basically saying that this mantra is the all-encompassing heart essence of all paths that lead to Buddhahood, the quintessence of all dharma doors, which is quite a proclamation. There are, there are incredibly profound mantras like the Vajra Guru Mantra, Om Ahum Vajra Guru Pema Siddhi Hom, the six-syllable mantra, Om Mani Pema Hom, Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate Bodhiswaha, the Heart Sutra Mantra. But this mantra, according to Master Hua and all of his predecessors, including Shakyamuni Buddha, the champion of our realm, 
surpasses all of these in their effectiveness in leading sentient beings to becoming Buddhas. So in saying, it is by means of the Sharangama mantra that the Buddhas realize proper knowledge and all-pervading awareness, I am pretty sure he means just this. And hopefully what I say in the rest of this podcast will reflect why this is the case. So in putting the Sharangama mantra as the apex of all spiritual mantras, Master Hua in his commentary makes a caveat about how to use the mantra. He says, Some people think that cultivation can consist of nothing but meditation, and so they don't study sutras. That is a mistake. Others may think merely reciting mantras and studying the sutras will work and that they don't need to meditate. That is also not the right way. Some may hear how efficacious and powerful mantras are, so they merely recite mantras and do not cultivate in other ways. This is also behavior that is too extreme. In cultivation, no matter what dharma you cultivate, you must find the middle way. Don't get carried away. On the other hand, don't fail to go far enough. Too much is the same as not enough. True enough, mantras are efficacious, but you must also develop your samadhi power. This sutra stresses that the mantra is efficacious, but the most essential point, as far as cultivation is concerned, is its teaching of the dharma door of turning the hearing back to hear the self-nature, the dharma door of the perfect penetration of the organ of the ear. So even when you recite mantras, you should be turning the hearing back to hear the self-nature. You should return the light and illumine within. When you recite the mantra, the mantra is of one mind, and mind is the mantra. The two cannot be separated. The mind and the mantra are two, and yet not two. Although they are two, they become one. If you can become like that, then whatever you want will be as you wish. You will certainly be able to accomplish what you set out to do. If the mantra and your mind unite as one, then you will obtain the samadhi of Chan. This is something that everyone should be aware of. So, he made that very, very clear. And not just Master Hua, but any authentic teacher will tell you that all aspects of the path, from refuge and precepts to shamatha and vipassana, reliance on a teacher, study of sutras, the Eightfold Path, super diligence, super compassion, etc., every box must be checked and all criteria must be fulfilled to ascend the bodhisattva bhumis. If Buddhahood was easy, there would be no wars and poverty. It literally may be the most difficult thing in the entire universe to accomplish. It takes an indomitable spirit and unshakable faith to get to the highest levels of practice, whether they are Chan or Mahamudra or Dzogchen, the odds are stacked against you, especially at this point in history. When those who have gained accomplishment in the path are few and far in between, and there is such an inundation of sensorial distraction, both positive like family and entertainment, but also negative like the 24-hour news cycle and the absolutely terrifying state of the world, where it's so enticing to point the finger at this person or that institution. From my view that lacks real faith, it can really feel irresponsible sometimes to spend time doing inner work, quote unquote. It can feel like you're abandoning those that are suffering if you spend your time meditating instead of activism or community organizing or posting on the internet or volunteering or talking with friends and family about the obvious racism and classism that pervades the world's socioeconomic disparity. And I'm not at all saying to not do those things. But to put all that aside sometimes to focus on awareness of awareness seems an unsurmountable task and a fool's errand if you don't think that Buddhahood is possible. 
However, after spending eight weeks with Alan Wallace on one of his most recent online retreats, I myself have fostered the resolve or personal belief that the most good that can be done in the world will come from individuals who have achieved personal freedom from suffering and clearly see reality as it is and are willing to teach others to do the same. The truth of selflessness as an ontological scientific theory and not just a pleasant adjective must be central to all of human education and understanding, but in a secular way. The recognition that not only do we share a body, that we are literally the very earth that we walk on, but that we also share a mind, a consciousness, and a fate, a future, that the fate of one being is inseparable from the fate of all other beings, is part of what making the earth a suitable place to live on will take. Compassion and kindness are universal values that all beings appreciate, but somehow we lost our way and forgot this. So for truth to become manifest here on earth, as it did in all of those great societies where the Dharma flourished, the way Master Hua made the Dharma a living reality in the U.S. in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, was because of tremendous and transcendent individuals who demonstrated resilience to adverse circumstances and were able to implement an education to create an enlightened society on a mass scale. But any gains that we make as a society rely entirely upon individuals who have stepped up to the plate. And any work that we do, whether it be mundane and worldly or super mundane and dharmic, must be done with intelligence, with calm, with an ethical compass, with precision, and with a globally responsible intent. So there's literally no movement in our world today that cannot benefit from Buddhist values. But as Buddhists, we have to be a little sneaky in our language to spread the teachings in a way that is not proselytizing or invasive, but skillful and clever. So when people have some insight, they'll feel like, hey, I got a great idea. Maybe we should all love one another and treat each other with dignity and respect and stop killing each other for nothing. So anyway, the Sharangama Sutra. Uh, the Sharangama Sutra is the instruction manual. The mantra is the tool. But the work that is to be done is expressed through the Sharangama Samadhi, or the realization that one achieves. And there is a whole other sutra where the Buddha gives greater detail about this Sharangama Samadhi, and it's called the Sharangama Samadhi Sutra. Uh, but essentially it is equated with perfect Buddhahood, which in the context of this podcast will have to remain inconceivable and immutable. You should really open up the Sharangama Sutra and Sharangama Samadhi Sutra to get the full blast of nectar that emanates from these documents. Links to the free PDFs will be on BuddhaVersePodcast.com. But to give an impression of it, in the introduction of the sutra, in the meaning of the title, it says, The hidden basis of the Bodhisattva practices is the Sharangama Mantra, and the Sharangama Samadhi. The word Bodhisattva can be translated as awakening being. Bodhisattvas devote themselves to awakening of all beings, while at the same time they engage in myriad practices that will lead to their own full awakening. When one becomes a Buddha, which is the goal of myriad bodhisattva practices, one can verify through one's own experience the nature of ultimate truth. And in regards to this ultimate truth, Master Hua gives this commentary. True reality is true emptiness, and it is also wondrous existence. Do you say that true emptiness is empty? It is not, because within it, all that exists comes into being. True emptiness is said to be true because it is not, in fact, empty. And all that exists is wondrous because it does not, in fact, exist. 
What exists within emptiness is wondrous existence. Emptiness, therefore, is not empty, and that lack of emptiness within emptiness is true emptiness. Since true emptiness is not empty, it is called wondrous existence. Since wondrous existence does not exist, it is called true emptiness. These two names are one. If you investigate this in detail, you will find, however, that even that one does not exist. Fundamentally, there isn't anything at all. To truly be apart from all attributes is to have real samadhi. If you can separate yourself from all attributes, Mount Tai could come crashing down in front of you and you would not be startled. Demonic obstructions can only disturb your samadhi because your mind moves. As soon as your mind moves, the obstacles slip right in. If you don't move, no demon in existence will have any way to get at you. No spell that can be recited can influence you. It was because Ananda didn't have sufficient power of mental concentration that the Matanga woman was able to confuse him. If he had the genuine Sharangama Samadhi, there would have been no need for the Buddha to speak the Sharangama Sutra or the Sharangama Mantra, and you and I would not be able to study them now. He further states, You should respect and honor the wonderful Sharangama Samadhi, and the method of breaking through to enlightenment by directing the hearing inward to listen to your inherent nature. You should also revere the Dharma of the Sharangama Mantra, which is the supreme and most honored Dharani of the Buddhas. The Sharangama Samadhi is the Dharma of the nature of all the thus come ones of the ten directions. It is the mother of all Buddhas. It is the ultimate, most thorough, and subtly wonderful Dharma for progress and self-cultivation. The most important method, the most important instruction about the road you should take to attain the wisdom and vision of the Buddhas. And again, in regards to proper Samadhi, Master Hua states, There are many gateways to the Dharma in the practice of Samadhi. There are other samadhis not taught in Buddhism. But in cultivating samadhi, if you begin in a direction that is wrong even by the width of a hair, you will end up missing your target by a thousand miles. Therefore, it is necessary to cultivate proper samadhi. People who take a wrong path do not develop proper samadhi because they work among the branches rather than applying themselves to the roots. They work on this body, which is a false shell. They take the ordinary thinking mind, the sixth consciousness, to be the true mind, as a result, their practice gives them a little experience of stillness, but what they experience is not genuine. They force themselves to keep their thoughts from arising, but they haven't dug out the root of their deluded thinking, so they can't put an end to death and rebirth. It is like trying to stop grass from growing by placing a rock on it. When the rock is removed, the grass will grow right back. So, this may all sound ridiculously abstruse or convoluted if you are new to Buddhism or if you have not meditated extensively or if you are meditating but in the wrong way. But if you think there is merit to what's being said and you would like to understand it and have clarity on the matter, I suggest you first read the Sharangama Sutra and the Sharangama Samadhi Sutra as well as their commentaries and other sutras and other commentaries and if still unclear, you absolutely should bring your questions and concerns to an authentic lineage-holding Dharma teacher near you, preferably one you can speak with directly, so that they can get a read on you and address your specific temperament and abilities. There is absolutely no substitute for an authentic Dharma teacher that really knows their stuff. And when meeting them, we should regard that person as though meeting Shakyamuni himself. So, with this basic introduction to the Sarangama Sutra, Mantra, and Samadhi, uh, I can't cover with any depth the meaning of Buddhahood or inconceivable liberation that is discussed at length in the Sutra. That is too tall an order for one podcast. 
but I can give an intro to the benefits of the mantra from the sutra chapter titled Power of the Mantra in the hopes of sparking some sort of desire to pick up this practice. I'll just be reading straight from the sutra. Shakyamuni addressing Ananda says, Ananda, all Buddhas throughout the ten directions are born from the esoteric lines of this mantra of the white canopy, with its subtle and wonderful phrases and sections spoken by the Buddha seated within the light at the crown of the thus come one's head. By means of this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten direction have gained supreme right and universal wisdom. Wielding this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions subdue all demons and show the right way to all who are on the wrong path. Conveyed by the power of this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions, each seated upon a magnificent lotus flower, appear in response to the needs of beings in numberless lands. Holding fast to this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten direction appear in numberless lands to turn the great wheel of the Dharma. Employing this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions bestow predictions on beings everywhere, each one circling his right hand over the crown of the head of each of these beings. They bestow predictions even upon beings who have not yet become enlightened. Relying on this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions also rescue beings everywhere from suffering in its various forms. The suffering endured in the hells, the sufferings endured by hungry ghosts, the sufferings endured by animals, the sufferings endured by the blind, the deaf, and the mute, the sufferings caused by the presence of people one detests, the sufferings caused by the absence of people one loves, the sufferings caused by the failure to get what one wants, and the sufferings caused by the fire of the five aggregates. The thus come ones of the ten directions can rescue beings from sudden misfortunes, whether great or small, whether caused by thieves, armies, kings, imprisonment, wind, fire, flood, hunger, thirst, or penury. The thus come ones can dispel all of these misfortunes by reciting this mantra. In harmony with this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions in the four aspects of their comportment have previously served good and wise teachers and have made appropriate offerings to them. They have been chosen as great Dharma princes among the disciples of as many thus come ones as there are sand grains in the river's Gange. By putting into practice this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten direction gather together the beings with whom they have strong affinities and assure that any of these beings who are adherents of the lesser vehicle will not be alarmed upon hearing the esoteric teachings concerning the matrix of the thus come one. Through reciting this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten directions realize supreme enlightenment and enter the perfect nirvana as they sit beneath a Bodhi tree. By transmitting this mantra of the mind, the thus come ones of the ten direction pass on the work of the Buddha's dharmas to others, so that after their nirvana, the dharma can endure, and so that all can remain pure by following the precepts strictly and flawlessly. Were I to continue speaking of the virtues of this mantra of the white canopy, which is proclaimed within the blaze of light at the crown of the Buddha's head, I could continue to explain it from morning to night without interruption and without repeating myself and yet still not finish, even if I were to keep on speaking for as many eons as there are sand grains in the river's Ganges. This mantra may also be called the mantra that is spoken from above the crown of the thus come one's head. All of you who still need instruction and have not yet escaped from the cycle of death and rebirth, but have vowed with great sincerity to become arhats, must be certain to practice this mantra if you wish to remain free of demonic influences while you are seated in your place of awakening. Ananda, the people of any country in any world can write out this mantra on birch bark, palm leaves, papyrus, or white cotton cloth, whatever material is native to their region, and each of them can keep this written mantra in a fragrant pouch, 
You should know that even if these people are dull-witted and cannot recite or memorize the mantra, they can still wear the pouch or keep it in their dwellings. If they do this, then throughout their lives, no poison will ever be able to harm them. Ananda, I will now tell you more about how this mantra can protect beings of the world and rescue them from danger, how it can deliver them from every fear and help them attain transcendent wisdom. You should know that, after my nirvana, in the time of the Dharma's ending, people who can recite this mantra or teach others to recite it will be in no danger of being burned or of being drowned or of being harmed by mild or strong poisons. Further, when they are absorbed in samadhi, no evil spell will have the power to ensnare them, whether the spell be cast by gods, dragons, ghosts, or spirits, including terrestrial or celestial spirits, demonic ghosts, and nightmare ghosts. Any substance made venomous by spell, curse, or sorcerer's hex, any poisonous herb or potion made toxic by the admixture of metals such as gold or silver, any noxious vapor derived from plants, trees, insects, or snakes, indeed any of the countless kinds of poisonous substances, all this will turn into ambrosia upon entering the mouths of people who recite this mantra. No evil spirit dwelling in a celestial body, nor any other ghost or spirit that harbors malice towards people, will have the power to work its evil on them. They will always be guarded and protected by the Vinayaka, and by other once hostile ghost kings who have been tamed by deep kindness. Ananda, this mantra is always attended, day and night, by bodhisattvas in the lineage of the bodhisattva king Vajra Treasury, their numbers are 84,000, 10 billion trillion times the number of sand grains in the river's Ganges. Each of them is accompanied by a vast retinue of Vajra-brandishing followers. These bodhisattvas in the lineage of the Bodhisattva King Vajra Treasury will always be present to protect beings who recite this mantra and who are resolved to become enlightened. Indeed, they will even protect beings whose minds are scattered and disorderly and lack samadhi, but who can nevertheless recite this mantra from memory. In ways that are hidden, all these bodhisattvas in the lineage of the Bodhisattva King Vajra Treasury will focus their minds upon hastening these beings toward developing spiritual awareness. These beings will then suddenly recall everything that happened to them during 84,000 times as many eons as there are sand grains in the river's Ganges. They will understand these past events thoroughly and with complete certainty. From that time onward, until their last rebirth, they will never be born in inauspicious places where there are yakshas, rakshasas, putanas, kataputanas, kumbandanas, pisashas, and pretas, or other ghosts, some of whom are visible and some of whom are not, and some of whom are intelligent and some of whom are not. Good people who, in eon after eon, read this mantra, recite it from memory, write it out, wear it on their bodies, or keep it in a safe place, making various offerings to it, will not be reborn into poverty or into lowly circumstances or in an unpleasant place. If they themselves have not earned any karmic rewards, the thus-come-ones of the ten directions will transfer their own merit to them. Therefore, for an inexpressibly great number of uncountable eons, as many as the sand grains in the river's Ganges, they will be born in the same generation in which a Buddha has been born. Their merit will be immeasurably great, and they will be close to the Buddhas as the seeds of the Akshas are to each other. They will become permeated with the fragrance of spiritual practice. They will never be separated from the Buddhas. Further, the mantra can enable people who have broken their precepts to regain their purity. It can enable people who have not received precepts to become precepted. It can enable people who have not been vigorous to become vigorous. It can enable people who are lacking in wisdom to become wise. It can enable people who are impure to quickly become pure. It can enable people who do not follow the precepts concerning a pure diet to succeed in following those precepts. Ananda, 
Suppose good people who recite this mantra violated precepts before the mantra had been given to them. Then, when they begin to recite the mantra, that karma from their precept-breaking offenses, whether grave or slight, will be immediately erased. These people may have taken intoxicants, or they may have eaten plants of the onion family or other impure foods. But the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Vajra-brandishing warriors, gods, immortals, ghosts, and spirits will not consider that a transgression. These people may wear old and tattered clothes, or clothes that have not been washed, but they will still be pure, whatever they do and wherever they are. Even if they do not set up a place for awakening, or do not enter a place for awakening, or do not follow a practice regimen, still if they recite this mantra, their merit will be the same as if they had entered the place for awakening and had followed a practice regimen. They may even have committed the five unnatural crimes, which are deserving of the unrelenting hell. They may even have committed the five unnatural crimes, which are deserving of the unrelenting hell. Or they may be monks who have committed the four major offenses deserving of expulsion, or nuns who have committed the eight major offenses deserving of expulsion. Yet their grave karma will be wiped away without a trace of remaining, like a sand dune that has been scattered in a gale. Ananda, there may be beings who, either in their present life or in their previous lives, have never repented of the serious and minor offenses they have committed during countless innumerable eons in the past. But if they can read, recite from memory, or write out the mantra, or wear it on their person, or keep it where they are dwelling, either in their homes or where they are staying temporarily, then their accumulated karma will melt away as snow is melted by boiling liquid. Before long, they will gain patience with the state of mind in which no mental objects arise. Moreover, if women who do not have children, and who wish to conceive, can recite this mantra sincerely and from memory, or if they wear this mantra of the white canopy, they will bear sons and daughters who are blessed with virtue and wisdom. If people who recite the mantra from memory wish for a long life, they will live a long life. Whatever they wish to accomplish, they will quickly accomplish. In the same way, they will also have health, good fortune, beauty, and strength. At the end of their lives, they will be reborn in whatever country in the ten directions they wish. They will certainly not be reborn among uncivilized people or at a lower level of society. By no means will they be born in any form that is less than human. Ananda, suppose that in a village, a district, a province, or in an entire country there is a famine or plague, or perhaps in that place there is war, or the marauding of bandits, or the strife of rebellion, or other calamities. Then the spiritual mantra should be written out and placed in the four city gates, or in the chaitas, or on banners. The citizens of the country should be instructed to come to welcome the mantra with honor, to venerate it respectfully, and to sincerely make offerings to it. The citizens should also be instructed to wear the mantra on their bodies and place it in their homes. Then all the disasters will disappear. Ananda, in any country and in any place where this mantra exists, among the people, the celestial dragons are pleased, the weather is clement, the harvests are abundant, and all people are happy and at peace. Further, the mantra can prevent disasters indicated by the positions of inauspicious celestial bodies. People will not suffer untimely deaths, nor will they be bound, fettered, or shackled. Day or night, they will sleep peacefully, free from evil dreams. Ananda, among the 84,000 inauspicious heavenly bodies that indicate the coming of disasters in the Saha world, 28 major heavenly bodies are the more inauspicious among them, and among these, 8 are the most influential. These heavenly bodies appear in a variety of forms. Their appearance can indicate the visitation of calamities upon living beings and the occurrence of uncanny events. But in any place where this mantra exists, all such calamities are prevented. 
in an area of 84 miles around such a place will be safeguarded so that no calamitous influence will ever be able to enter. These are the reasons why the Thus Come One has proclaimed this mantra. In the future it will protect all who have just begun their spiritual practice so that they can enter samadhi and have peace and great tranquility in body and mind. Furthermore, they will not be harmed or vexed by any demon, ghost, or spirit, nor by any enmity, vulnerability to disaster, or karmic debt incurred in previous lives since time without beginning. Supposing that, besides you and others in the assembly who still need instruction, spiritual practitioners in the future establish a place for awakening and keep the precepts in accord with the instructions, supposing that they have received precepts from precept masters who have maintained purity as members of the Sangha, and supposing that they harbor no doubts as they uphold this essential mantra, then if these good people do not gain a spiritual awakening while in this present body, given them by their parents, the thus-come-ones of the ten directions have not told the truth. And then after this there is a litany of Brahma kings who make a vow to protect the mantra and those who practice it. So all of this sounds like good news to me. Uh, but the only way of knowing if all of this is true is to put it into practice, to follow the Buddha's instructions and see for ourselves if it is so. It would be pretty weird of me to put all of this out there if I didn't think that it was actually true, or if I had no experience of its validity myself. But for the sake of humility, I think I will just say, I think you'll find out for yourself if you put forth sincere effort. So to conclude this episode, I want to read a teaching Master Hua gave on the benefits of practicing the Sharangama Mantra. Now, Master Hua, Master Shen Hua, the Dharma heir of Shi Yun, the founder of the first Mahayana monastic community in North America, was an extremely special person. It makes me sad that I only got to share the planet with him for seven years uh, as he passed into Nirvana in 1995, because if you were to meet him in person, you would be encountering the real with a capital R. And in the 60s and 70s, I feel like Americans and the world in general were more open to new cultural traditions and philosophies and could accept that there was more to reality than meets the eye. The world was able to entertain the idea of magic and this morose pseudo-intellectual abnegation of our inner world that we suffer under currently had yet to set in. But Master Hua, in my belief was a high-level bodhisattva, if not an actual Buddha himself. But in keeping with that tradition, he would never refer to himself as such. But without a doubt, on a regular basis, made it very clear that he had mastered many spiritual penetrations or psychocognitive extrasensitivities that would demolish any firmly held belief in metaphysical material realism. He would read people's minds directly and address the would-be hidden thought of his sangha or audience member publicly and in a matter-of-fact and undeniable way. He knew the past lives of others and would speak about spirits or ghosts that were in the vicinity openly and made it clear that meditation is more than just staring at the ground and having no thoughts. I've heard countless stories from his direct disciples about the crazy things that would happen around Master Hua, and I will enumerate some when I do a podcast about him. But from what I gather, uh, this being could directly perceive another bandwidth of experience unknown to those of us who, according to Buddhist jargon, are in the desire realm and have not reached the form realm and above. 
and because he himself had realized the fruit of practice, he would exhort those around him to practice diligently so that they can have the same spiritual penetrations that he did, which is encouraging and impelling. So while listening to the following, try to have a mind that is open to a metaphysic more than you are directly aware of yourself, that your experience of reality is not the final say on what reality contains, that there may be more to the fabric of reality than is present to us in this moment or is measurable with instruments. The following talk is entitled, The Efficacious Language of Heaven and Earth. Now I am explaining the Sharangama Mantra for you, and it is extremely difficult to encounter such a rare Dharma assembly as this. Billions of eons pass, and no one explains the Sharangama Mantra even once. Nor is it easy to explain even once. When I am explaining, I know full well that no one understands what is being said. Even if there are those who think they do, they don't really understand. Some think they already understand, and so they don't pay attention, but that's also failing to understand. Among the Buddhist teachings, the Sharangama Mantra is considered to be the king of mantras because it is the longest and most important. The flourish or demise of Buddhism rests entirely with the Sharangama Mantra. It is the efficacious phrases of the Sharangama Mantra that keep heaven and earth from being destroyed. It is the efficacious phrases of the Sharangama Mantra that keep the world from coming to an end. That is why I often tell you that as long as a single person can recite the Sharangama Mantra, the world cannot be destroyed, and nor can Buddhism. But when there is no longer anyone who can recite the Sharangama Mantra, then very quickly the world will be destroyed, because the proper Dharma no longer abides. Now there are even heavenly demons and externalists who claim that the Sharangama Sutra and the Sharangama Mantra are false. These heaven demons and externalists send their demon sons and grandsons to stir up rumors that cause people to not believe in the Sharangama Sutra and the Sharangama Mantra. This Sutra and Mantra are critically important to the preservation of the proper Dharma. The Sharangama Sutra was spoken for the sake of the Sharangama Mantra. There is no way to ever finish expressing the importance of the Sharangama Sutra and the Sharangama Mantra. To the ends of all time, their merits, virtues, and wonderful functions could never be told. So absolutely inconceivable and ineffable they are. When all is said and done, the Sharangama Sutra is an ode to the Sharangama Mantra. As long as there is even one person who can recite the Sharangama Mantra, the demons, ghosts, and strange entities don't dare show themselves in this world. They fear the mantra. But when not even one person can recite the Sharangama Mantra by heart, then those weird entities, those demons and ghosts, will come out of hiding. Depraved and up to no good, they will not be recognized by most people. At this point in time, since there are still those who can recite this mantra from memory, those malevolent beings haven't made their appearance yet. And so, if you want to keep the world from being destroyed, quickly learn the Sharangama Mantra and read the Sharangama Sutra to keep the proper Dharma in the world. Today the explanation of the Sharangama Mantra is beginning. The word Sharangama translates as ultimately firm and strong. The entire title of the Sharangama Mantra is Great White Canopy of Light Dharani Mantra. It is also called Brilliant Buddha's Crown, Great White Canopy of Light Unsurpassed Spiritual Mantra. The Buddha's Crown refers to the transformation Buddha atop the Buddha's Crown. There is no way to conceive the subtle wonder of the mantra. The contents of the Sharangama Mantra subdues heavenly demons and controls externalists. Every line from beginning to end is the Buddha's mind-ground Dharma door. Each line has its own function. Each possesses its own esoteric wonder. 
and each is endowed with incredible power. The recitation of a single word, a single line, a single assembly, or the recitation of the entire mantra causes the heavens to vibrate and the earth to tremble. It is said that heaven and earth are shocked. The ghosts and spirits wail. The demons keep a wide distance, and mountains and river sprites hide away. That brilliance at the Buddha's crown represents the power of the mantra that can dispel every sort of darkness, and that enables people to amass all kinds of merit and virtue. If you can accept and uphold the Sharangama mantra, then you will definitely become a Buddha in the future. You will certainly attain the unsurpassed, proper, and equal right enlightenment. If you continually recite the Sharangama mantra, then you can get rid of your karmic obstacles from last life and all past lives. That's the incredible function of the Sharangama mantra. Moha is Sanskrit and means great. The substance, appearance, and function are all great. The substance is said to be great because it pervades the ten directions. The function fills up empty space and reaches throughout the Dharma realm and has the appearance, well, there isn't any appearance. You can say that it neither has any appearance nor lacks any appearance. The function also doesn't really exist. Yet there isn't any place its function does not reach in all of space and the Dharma realm. That is a great function a great appearance and a great substance. Pervading the ten directions, exhausting the limits of space, and filling the Dharma realm is the meaning of moha. Saranto, also Sanskrit, means white, and represents purity and lack of defilement. Pure white Dharma is devoid of filth. The Sharangama Mantra is pure white Dharma. Bodala is Sanskrit and translates as canopy. Canopy is an analogy. This canopy provides shelter for those with myriad virtues. The function of this canopy is to protect those endowed with virtue and those practicing virtuous conduct, meaning anyone who encounters this mantra. Those lacking virtuous conduct won't have the opportunity to meet with this dharma. It is said, The three lights universally illumine, permeating the three forces. In all of this world of Jambudvipa, you may not come upon it. Only those with great virtue and great goodness will attain it. Those lacking in virtue and goodness just won't understand it. The three lights universally illumine, permeating the three forces. Here, the three lights do not refer to the sun, moon, and stars. Rather, it means that when you recite the Sharangama Mantra, your body emits light, your mouth emits light, and your mind emits light. It is talking about the light of the three karmas. The three forces refer to heaven, earth, and people. In all of the world of Jambudvipa, you may not come upon it. Throughout our world, Jambudvipa, you may seek but not find it. You absolutely must uphold the Sharangama Mantra in order to attain this light. If you have amassed virtuous conduct and have magnanimous virtue, then you will be able to attain the Dharma door. Those lacking virtue and goodness just won't understand it. If you don't have sufficient virtue and haven't done enough good deeds, then even if you come face to face with it, you'll miss your chance. Right within arm's reach, you'll lose it. Having come upon gold, you'll mistake it for copper. Having found a diamond, you'll think it's a piece of glass. You'll fail to recognize it. You'll look upon the Sharangama Mantra as nothing at all out of the ordinary, and as a consequence, won't realize it's the gem of gems, the wonder of wonders. You won't have any concept of the Sharangama Mantra's unfathomable merit and virtue. Besides the three lights emitted when the three karmas of body, mouth, and mind are pure, there is also a swirling red light. Recitation of the Sharangama Mantra generates a swirling red light. It's described this way. A thousand-petaled red lotus supports one's body, as one sits firmly mounted on a black unicorn. Seeing this, the hordes of monsters go far away to hide. Dharma Master Jir, 
the venerable mastered these wonderful sounds. A thousand-petaled red lotus supports one's body. When you recite the first twenty-one lines of the Shurangama Mantra, a state occurs wherein a red lotus with a thousand petals manifests and emits red light. As one sits firmly mounted on a black unicorn, upon reciting this mantra, the person chanting finds himself sitting astride a unicorn. Seeing this, the hordes of monsters go far away to hide. No matter what kind of weird creatures or demon or ghost it might be, they all flee, not daring to face such a magnificent and awesome manifestation. The Venerable Jur is a well-known high master in Buddhism. His expert use of this passage of the mantra to subdue heavenly demons and control externalists was extremely efficacious. And so the last line says, Dharma Master Jur, the Venerable, mastered these wonderful sounds. This passage of the mantra instructs us to take refuge with all Buddhas and all Bodhisattvas, all the hearers and conditioned enlightened ones, and all the gods throughout the empty space and the Dharma realm. It is a passage that protects the Triple Jewel, and so when you recite it, the demons flee and the ghosts don't stop running until they're ten miles away. Not just ten miles, they'll back off until there's no more room to retreat. They don't dare make trouble, they are forced to behave themselves. That is a general description of what the passage of mantra is about. The details are even more wonderful. Unendingly miraculous and mysterious, it's extremely hard to fathom. This Vajra secret language wells forth from your own nature. Inside the Sharangama mantra is marvelous magic. Then come the five eyes and six penetrations, and the way opens up. Unendingly miraculous and mysterious, it's extremely hard to fathom. The Sharangama Mantra is quite esoteric, and its changes and transformations are inexplicable. It is not easy to figure out. This Vajra secret language wells forth from your own nature. The Sharangama Mantra is the secret within the secret. That's the Vajras who come to protect the mantra. Your own nature, it is born from your own Buddha nature. Inside the Sharangama Mantra is marvelous magic. The Sharangama Mantra is called an efficacious language because of its spellbinding power. That's what marvelous magic is referring to. Then come five eyes and six penetrations, and the way opens up. If you can continually uphold the Sharangama Mantra single-mindedly without entertaining other thoughts, then you can attain the five eyes and six spiritual penetrations. You will then experience the inconceivable, unfathomable changes and transformations that occur which ordinary people are totally unaware of. And that's the reason why I hope everyone will learn to read the Sharangama Mantra and memorize it. Why is it that the demons, ghosts, and goblins don't dare show themselves when you recite the Sharangama Mantra? It's so powerful that there isn't a place in all of the space or entirety of the Dharma realm that isn't flooded with auspicious light. Recitation of the Sharangama Mantra patches up the imperfections in the heavens and earth. One person reciting the Sharangama Mantra creates power equivalent to one person. A hundred people reciting creates power equivalent to a hundred people and the weird beings here in this world become very well-behaved. So it's better if more people recite. It is an unsurpassed spiritual mantra. The negative prefix un actually means lofty to the utmost, brilliant to the extreme. Peerless, radiant illumination, illumination piercing the heights is the meaning of un. And surpassed? Well, there's nothing more esteemed, nothing more venerated. Spiritual is what is inconceivable and ineffable what is awe-inspiring, efficacious, and unfathomable. The power of mantras brings a response with the way. When you recite mantras, something happens. Brilliant Buddha's crown, great white canopy of light, unsurpassed spiritual mantra. 
This means that the light at the crown of the Buddha's head is like a great white canopy that comes to shelter and protect all of us who recite the mantra. No one understands this mantra, nor can they explain line by line and word by word. But if you want to understand it, I can try my best to explain it to you. The Shrangama mantra can't be explained in a year's time, or three years' time, or even ten years' time. Now I will explain the general intent of this mantra. This mantra is composed of five assemblies, which represent the five directions of east, west, south, north, and center. The east is the Vajra division, with Akshobhya Buddha as the teaching host. The south is the Welling Up of Jewels division, with Welling Up of Jewels Buddha as the teaching host. The center is the Buddha division, with Shakyamuni Buddha as the teaching host. The west is the Lotus division, with Amitabha Buddha as the teaching host. The north is the Karma division, with the Accomplishment Buddha as the teaching host. Together, these five divisions watch over the five demonic armies that abide in the world. Because of these five demons, the Buddhas split up the five directions to repress these demons. Without the Buddhas, these demons will show themselves here in our world. And so when you recite the Shurangama Mantra, the five demonic armies in the five directions submit and surrender. They behave themselves and don't dare try to oppose the power of the Shurangama Mantra. The five divisions in the mantra are what make it so fine. But you shouldn't be attached. Your becoming attached won't be so fine. Within the five assemblies of the Shurangama Mantra are more than 30 sections of dharmas. Before, when I was in Manchuria, the reason I was able to cure people's illnesses was all because of the power of the Shurangama Mantra. But the Shurangama Mantra cannot be used casually. If used, it's not the entire thing that's used, because within it are, in general, more than 30 different dharmas. If looked at in detail, there are over a hundred. As to these dharmas, there is the dharma of accomplishment. That means by reciting the Shurangama Mantra, whatever method you are practicing will be perfected. Whatever thing you want to do will get done. There is also the dharma of increasing benefits. That means, for example, if you don't have enough resolve for the way in your practice, by reciting the mantra you can increase your wisdom, increase your bodhi mind, increase the power of your vows. Everything will get better. When you recite the mantra, everything you hope increases will surely do so. It will increase for others too. The Dharma of quelling disasters means that if a calamity is due, reciting the mantra will make it disappear. The disaster will be quelled. Suppose someone is due to drown in the ocean. Reciting the mantra can change the situation so that he doesn't get drowned. Or if you're on a boat that's supposed to sink, recitation of the mantra can keep the boat from sinking. Or the airplane is supposed to crash, but you're reciting the mantra and so it doesn't. Nonetheless, you have to take responsibility for dispelling the calamities in your own mind. What calamities are there in your own mind? Well, if you merely rely on the mantra, but inside you are a bundle of false and malevolent thoughts, scattered and impure thoughts, lustful thoughts, then you certainly haven't expelled the calamities of your own mind. In that case, no mantra is going to work. And so, if you want to avoid disasters, you must first purify your own mind. The purity of your mind is what really dispels calamities. If you are full of greed, hatred, and stupidity, no mantra is going to be efficacious. Our frame of mind is extremely important. We must be kind-hearted and filled with goodness, wishing to help others. Our mind should be wholesome. The Dharma for hooking and summoning is for use when you meet up with heavenly demons and externalists and want to catch them. Just as law enforcement officers catch criminals, so too the hooking and summoning Dharma catches weird creatures, demons, and ghosts. They do something here to harm others and do some bad things that causes people to get sick and then run away. But you want to catch them, and so you recite the mantra, using the hooking and summoning dharma. Well, 
no matter how far away from you they are, the Dharma-protecting good spirits, or members of the Eightfold Division, or some of the 84,000 Vajra Treasury Bodhisattvas will immediately snatch them and bring those demonic beings back. Even then, sometimes they won't give in, and you have to use all kind of expedients to teach and transform them. If you use brute force to subdue them, then that's the lowest grade of Dharma. It is not a good method. The best methods don't use any sort of power plays to oppress beings. Don't oppress them and don't contend with them. Don't be like an Ashura, tough and looking for a fight. Even when you clearly have the power to do so, don't use the dharmas to subdue them. You should use virtuous conduct to influence beings and then teach and transform them. And finally, there is the dharma of subduing. Demons have spiritual penetrations and they also have mantras. You recite your mantra and they recite theirs. But when you use the Shurangama mantra, you break through all their mantras and subdue them. You use the power to quell them and make them behave. I've told you all before that the Shurangama mantra has within it a few lines of mantra that rends the nets of demons. Why was the mantra from the Brahma heavens rendered useless? It was because of the Five Great Hearts mantra. The Five Great Hearts mantra destroys the mantras underlying the demons in externalist spells and incantations. It doesn't matter what mantra they use. When you recite these lines, their spells are smashed and their mantras become ineffectual. If I wanted to market this dharma, a million dollars wouldn't even touch my asking price. But I can see that you all have a bit of sincerity, and so I'm transmitting it to you absolutely free. To sum it up, no matter what dharma you cultivate, you must have the unsurpassed resolve for Bodhi. You must have great kindness and compassion. You must practice great giving and great renunciation. You must not use the powers you gain in practicing the way to oppress any other person or to squelch any demon, monster, goblin, or ghost. Furthermore, the Dharma of auspiciousness enables things to go your way when you recite the mantra. Good fortune prevails. Now I've given you an explanation of these dharmas. I could talk for several years and never finish describing the good points of this mantra. All Buddhas of the Ten Directions come forth from the Shurangama mantra. The Shurangama mantra is the mother of all Buddhas. It was by means of the Shurangama mantra that all Buddhas perfected unsurpassed, proper, and pervasive enlightened knowledge. The ability of the Buddhas of the Ten Directions to create response bodies and go throughout the Ten Directions turning the Dharma wheel to teach and transform living beings, to rub the crowns of those beings and bestow predictions upon them, to rescue beings from their complex suffering, to enable beings to escape both large disasters and small calamities, their ability to do all of that comes from the power of the Shurangama Mantra heart. If you want to attain the fruition of Arhatship, you absolutely must recite this mantra to keep demonic things from happening. During the Dharma Ending Age, if people can memorize the Shurangama Mantra and encourage others to memorize it, well, fire cannot burn such people and water cannot drown them. No matter how potent a poison, it cannot harm them. For those who recite the Shurangama Mantra, poison turns to sweet dew as soon as it enters their mouths. People who recite the Shurangama Mantra will never get born in bad places, even if they want to. Why is that so? It's because the Shurangama Mantra pulls you back and won't allow you to go. Someone who recites the Shurangama Mantra may never have amassed any blessings or virtue, but simply because he recites the mantra, the thus-come-ones of the Ten Directions will bestow their own merit and virtue upon that person. Wouldn't you call that a bargain? That happens based on the recitation of the mantra alone. If you recite the Shurangama Mantra, you will continually be born at a time when the Buddha is in the world and will be able to immerse yourself in the cultivation under that Buddha's guidance. If your mind is terribly scattered so that you can't concentrate and don't have any samadhi power, but you think about the Shurangama Mantra and recite it within your lips, 
The Vajra Treasury King Bodhisattvas will very attentively watch for ways to invisibly help you gradually until your confusion has disappeared and you develop samadhi. They will imperceptibly help you open your wisdom and concentrate your mind to the point that you become crystal clear about all the events spanning the previous 84,000 Ganges sands of eons. If you can learn the Shirangama mantra until you have memorized it fluently so that you become one with the mantra, then you attain the mantra samadhi and your recitation will be like flowing water, welling up without interruption. If you can do that, then at the very least, for seven lives to come, you will be as wealthy as America's richest oil magnates. And you say, that's great. I'm going to learn the mantra right away. I wouldn't mind being a magnate of some kind. Well, if you are that selfish, then don't even bother learning the mantra. Seven lives pass in the blink of an eye anyway. What should those who learn the Shirangama mantra be hoping for? You should hope for ultimate Buddhahood. Hope to obtain the unsurpassed proper and equal right enlightenment. Don't be so petty. Actually, those who are really dedicated in reciting Shirangama mantra are transformed bodies of Buddhas. Not just any transformation bodies, but those atop the Buddha's crown. Transformation bodies of the transformation body. And so you see that the wonderful aspects of the Shirangama Mantra are difficult to express, difficult to conceptualize. Wherever someone is seriously reciting the Shirangama Mantra, a great white canopy will be there in the space above him. If your skill in reciting the mantra is high-level and far-reaching, then when you recite, the canopy will extend for thousands of miles, preventing any disasters or difficulties. If you only have a little skill, then the canopy will be right above your own head protecting you. If you have virtue in the way, if you are a high sangin, then when you recite, the entire nation will be benefited and no calamities will occur. Or if disasters are unavoidable, big ones will turn into little ones, and the little ones won't even happen. It doesn't matter if it's nationwide famine, plague, war, or plunder. All those kinds of disasters will all be alleviated. Suppose you were to write out the Shirangama spiritual mantra and place it in the main entrance to the city, or in its watchtowers, or in other lookout places. Suppose you could inspire the nation's inhabitants to show interest in the Shirangama mantra so that they bow to and revere it single-mindedly, make offerings to it as if they were offering to the Buddhas themselves. Suppose you could get every single citizen to wear the mantra on their person or to keep it in their place of residence. Well, if you could do that, all disasters would disappear. Wherever the Shirangama Mantra can be found in a place, the gods and dragons are delighted, and so that place will be free from devastating storms. The crops will produce in abundance, and the populace will be peaceful and happy. That is why I say that the merit and virtue of the Shirangama Mantra is inexpressible. It can't be reckoned in the mind. It can't be cognized in our thoughts. That's the wonder of it. Basically, broken precepts cannot be mended, but if you recite the Shirangama Mantra, you can return to purity. When I say recite, I don't mean you can just do it casually. You have to attain the mantra recitation samadhi. The recitation of the mantra must flow from your mind, and the mantra must flow back into your mind. That's called, the mantra is the mind, and the mind is the mantra. Your mind and mantra become united. There isn't any distraction. It reaches the point where you couldn't forget it if you wanted to. That's called, even when not reciting, the recitation continues. When reciting, there really isn't any recitation. You recite until there aren't any idle thoughts remaining. The only function of the mind is the recitation of the Shirangama mantra. That's called meshing with the mind. There are no second thoughts. The flow of the mantra's recitation is like water that flows on uninterrupted waves. At that point, everything expresses the Mahayana. The sounds of the breeze blowing and the water flowing are all the Shirangama mantra's heart mantra. If you can reach that level, then if you have broken precepts, you will be able to return to pure precepts.
you will be endowed with the precepts without going through the formal transmission. If you are someone who doesn't want to progress in your practice, who doesn't want to investigate the Buddha Dharma, but you recite the Sharangama Mantra for a period of time, quite naturally you will be inspired to be vigorous. Those who lack wisdom can open their wisdom. If you are not pure in your cultivation, so that you break your vegetarian practices and violate the precepts, but you have not forgotten the Sharangama Mantra, you will be able to quickly return to purity. If you violated precepts before you began upholding the mantra and prior to receiving the precepts, then once you started reciting the mantra, you can completely wipe out all those former offenses, no matter how serious they are, including even the four parajikas, the five rebellious acts, the four or eight offenses warranting dismissal from the sangha, which are basically unpardonable. Not even a hair's breadth of an offense will remain. And so I say that the power of the Sharangama mantra is beyond all concept or description. Some people who learn how efficacious the Sharangama mantra is decide to exclusively recite it and ignore all other aspects of cultivation. That's going overboard. In cultivation, no matter what dharma it is, you have to keep to the middle way. Don't do too much and don't d fail to do enough. Although the mantra is definitely efficacious, still you have to develop samadhi. The Sharangama Sutra describes how efficacious the mantra is, but it also explains the method of returning the hearing to listen to your own nature by cultivating perfect penetration of the ear organ. That is also extremely important. While you are reciting the mantra, you should be returning your hearing to listening to your own nature. You must reflect within. Didn't I explain earlier how the mantra becomes the mind and the mind becomes the mantra? The mind and the mantra cannot be separated. They are non-dual. When you get there, then you can attain whatever you seek. Everything will go the way you want it to, and you will have success in whatever you undertake. When the mind and the mantra merge into one, then you have actually attained the samadhi of Chan meditation and have acquired real samadhi power. That is something you should know. Every line of the Sharangama mantra contains infinite meanings as well as infinite functions. You should realize that the Sharangama mantra is the most efficacious language in the world. The efficacious within the efficacious, the esoteric within the esoteric. It is an unsurpassed Dharma treasure, the gem that can save living beings' lives. It embraces all that exists. From the Buddhas of the Ten Directions to the Avicii Hell, all the four kinds of sages and the six sorts of common realms pay homage to the Sharangama mantra. None of the ten Dharma realms transcends its scope. All categories of ghosts, spirits, Dharma-protecting deities, hearers, conditioned enlightened ones, up to the Buddha vehicle are contained within the Sharangama mantra. The Sharangama Mantra contains the names of ghosts and spirit kings. When the names of these leaders are recited, all the ghosts and spirits in their retinues become very obedient and behave themselves. They don't dare to make trouble. Reciting the Sharangama Mantra every day can cause demonic beings and weird ghosts throughout the world to settle down and stop harming people. The substance and function of the Sharangama Mantra are all-encompassing. It can be said that within the mantra can be found the entirety of Buddhism's teachings and meanings. If you can understand the Sharangama Mantra, then you have understood the essence of Buddhism's esoteric teachings. All the inconceivable wonders and esoteric phenomenon in the universe are contained in the Sharangama Mantra. If you master the Sharangama Mantra, then you don't need to study the esoteric school's white teachings, black teachings, yellow teachings, red teachings, or any other teaching. This is the ultimate method of samadhi, and most esoteric dharma. Unfortunately, no one really understands this esoteric dharma. No one even recognizes it. Most people study it, but cannot absorb it. They can only recite it, but don't know its meanings. Basically, it's not necessary to know the meanings of mantras. You need only realize that they are an ineffable, efficacious language. 
being able to recite the Shurangama mantra is a benefit to all beings. Not being able to recite it, you cannot offer that benefit to beings. Quickly learn it, memorize it, investigate and understand it. Then you will be doing what the Buddhist disciples should do. The very best is for those who want to recite the Shurangama mantra to do it for the sake of the entire world. Transfer all the merit to the whole world. There isn't anything more important in Buddhism than the Shurangama mantra. The Shurangama mantra is a sure sign of the proper dharma. The existence of the Shurangama mantra ensures the existence of the proper dharma. When the Shurangama mantra is gone, the proper dharma is gone. Those who cannot recite this mantra are not worthy of being Buddhist disciples. The Shurangama mantra is nicknamed Six Months Stupor because for most people it takes half a year of diligent recitation to get it memorized. Those of us who can recite the Shurangama mantra have been planting and nurturing good roots for countless eons. Being able to memorize it perfectly and never forget it is evidence of those good roots. Without good roots, not only will you not be able to recite it, you will never even hear of the existence of the Shurangama mantra. Or if you hear of it, you won't understand it and won't be able to recite it. Truly then, those who can recite it by heart do have great good roots. The Shurangama mantra is a dharmador difficult to encounter in billions of eons. For every line we learn and understand, we activate one part of its power. But then we must actually put it into practice. However, it's not that you try to make use of the mantra's vast efficacy and tremendous power. If you use this dharma, but you don't hold the precepts, like most people who aren't clear about anything and casually kill, steal, and are lustful, lie, and indulge in intoxicants, and who only recite the five great hearts mantra when some crisis happens, then you are defiling the dharma and there is no merit in that. If you insist on trying to control the ghosts and order the dharma protectors around, then you're just going to be increasing your own karmic offenses. You will bring calamities down upon yourself. Therefore, the first criterion for people who want to cultivate a dharma is to hold the precepts and place emphasis on developing virtuous conduct. You must not fight, be greedy, seek, be selfish, pursue your own advantage, or lie. If your virtue in the way is insufficient, but you pretend to be a sage who can transmit teachings or pass yourself off as the leader of a nation, then your behavior is unacceptable. Nowadays, everyone is interested in getting the most magic out of mantras, but they are not attentive to their own moral character, and so in fact their recitations will be ineffectual. Therefore, those who study the Shurangama Mantra Dharma must be proper in their behavior, proper in their intent, must not have defiled thoughts, and must not do impure deeds. They should be very attentive to cultivating purity. If on the one hand they cultivate the Shurangama Mantra, and on the other hand they don't follow the rules, they will get themselves in deep trouble. Everyone should pay close attention to this point. If your intent is not proper, and your conduct is not proper, then the Vajra Treasury Bodhisattvas will lose their respect for you and won't protect you. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are compassionate and would not hurt any living being or harm beings out of anger. But their attendants, the Dharma protectors, gods, dragons, ghosts, and spirits, will become enraged. Those evil ghosts and evil spirits, upon seeing you cultivating this mantra while committing offenses, will bring disaster and harm upon you, will make you feel very uncomfortable, will cause you to get in grave trouble, or make you have to undergo a series of misfortunes or a series of retributions. This is really no joking matter. Therefore, you must eat vegetarian food and purify yourself. Most of all your mind must be pure. Don't have defiled false thoughts. Maintain physical purity and don't practice defiling dharmas. At all times, guard your purity. Don't commit even the slightest infraction of the rules. Reciting the Shurangama mantra is more valuable than any amount of gold. 
Reciting the mantra at once is equivalent to tons of gold, but your recitation shouldn't be motivated by greed. If you hold the precepts, then you won't be jealous or obstructive. You won't be greedy or angry, and your recitation of the mantra will generate pervasive responses and massive benefits. But if your behavior doesn't accord with the rules, the Dharma protecting good spirits will stay far away from you, and when something happens to you, they won't pay any attention. Therefore, those who recite the Shurangama mantra shouldn't be cunning or behave in ways that continually create offenses. At all times, they should be open and public-spirited. They should strive to benefit others, not themselves. They should cherish the ideals of bodhisattvas and cultivate the practices of bodhisattvas. The Shurangama mantra is extremely efficacious, but it is not that easy to master. First of all, you cannot be selfish. Next, you cannot be out to get your own private gains. You have to be magnanimous and devoid of selfish thoughts. You have to be impartial and not prejudiced. You have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. You have to have the resolve to universally save all beings. If you can embody the above listed qualities, then you will have swift success. Pay close attention. You must hold the five precepts and practice the ten good deeds. That's the very least you should do. It won't work to practice this dharma if you are not following the rules. If you cultivate this dharma, but you don't behave yourself, if you don't guard the precepts, or if you are always having defiled thoughts, then not only will there be no response, not only will you have no success, you will in fact bring disaster down upon yourself. So when you are cultivating the Shurangama Mantra, you must be very attentive to maintain purity with your body, your mouth, and your mind. That's the only way you're going to get a response. You cannot say things that cause schisms and make people in the way place uneasy. You must pay attention to all aspects of your behavior, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. It's not alright to always be washing other people's clothes, as it were. Take care of yourself. Look into yourself. The Shurangama Mantra is an efficacious language. Every line has its own particular efficacy. But you don't need to think, why don't I get any response from holding the Shurangama Mantra? Don't pay attention to whether there are responses or not. Just keep reciting it. It's like practicing martial arts. Every day you have to practice your punches, regardless of what your skill is. Skill comes through training. It's impossible to have skill without training. By the same principle, you should cultivate your dharmas every day. No matter what happens, no matter how busy you are, don't slack off after you've been at it for a while, losing interest in the Shurangama Mantra. It's certainly not the case that you will have some efficacious response as soon as you begin reciting it. Regardless of whether you perceive any response, you should continue reciting it every day. You must deepen your skill day by day. Success doesn't happen overnight. For instance, you have to study for 10, 20, or even 30 years before you gain real scholarship. It's the same with cultivation. You must keep your mind on your recitation of the mantra, continuing your recitation, without ever letting it get cut off. It should be just as important as putting on clothes, eating food, and going to sleep. You shouldn't be able to be without it for a single day. It doesn't matter whether there's any response, because by reciting it every day, you will gradually have a foundation, and quite naturally, the mantra will function. If you hope for its wonderful functions and inconceivable power, then you must not keep having false thoughts, always daydreaming and fantasizing. If you cut off your recitation of the mantra, then you will not be able to attain samadhi. You must use your true mind and practice the Shurangama Mantra with sincerity. What's a true mind? It means that for the sake of reciting the Shurangama Mantra, you can forget all about time and even space disappears. 
You don't know if it's day or night. You don't know if you've eaten or not. You don't know if you've slept or not. You forget everything else. Everything disappears, and one thought extends for infinite eons. Well, infinite eons is one thought. That's the kind of spirit you should have, forgetting to eat and sleep for the sake of cultivating the Sharangama Mantra. In that way, you certainly can attain the Sharangama Samadhi. If you cannot be that way, then you aren't really cultivating the Sharangama Dharma Door. You should be that way not only in cultivating the Sharangama Mantra, but in the cultivation of any Dharma Door, walking without realizing you are walking, sitting without being aware you are sitting, being unaware that you are thirsty or hungry. Well, you say, isn't that just turning into a stupid person? That's right. It's said, when you learn to be a big idiot, then you start to have some skill. Studying until you are as if stupid is the beginning of real insight. If you can learn to be as if stupid, then no matter what Dharma door you cultivate, you will attain samadhi and gain some realization. It's just because you are unable to be stupid that you cannot properly enter into samadhi and don't get any response from your cultivation. When you are developing your skill in reciting the Sharangama Mantra, you may dream of yourself bowing to the Buddhas, or in a dream see the Buddha emitting light, or dream that you see the Buddha come to rub the crown of your head, or dream that the Buddhas speak the Dharma for you, or dream that you see the bodhisattvas, or conditioned enlightened ones, or hearers, or sagely sanghans, or gods and heavenly generals, or in a dream see yourself ascending into space, or dream that you can fly. All of these are good experiences. Or you may be riding a horse, or crossing a river, and encountering all sorts of auspicious lights. Or there may be other extremely rare appearances that manifest. If you do attain responses such as these, then you should be very careful. You should bring forth the resolve for Bodhi, Guard the purity of the karma created by your body, mouth, and mind, and increase your efforts and tighten your skill in reciting the mantra. You should not tell others what kinds of responses you've had in order to get others to believe in you or to think highly of you. It's enough for you yourself to know what responses you've had. If you keep advertising your own merits and selling your cultivation out on the streets, then you are wrong. If you act like that, you leave yourself open and the demons will attack. That's like failing to put your jewels in a safe box. If you leave them at the doorway, then someone is certainly going to steal them. Therefore, we must be very careful in our cultivation of the Buddha Dharma. Don't let the heavenly demons and externalists have their way with you. But you can report your experiences to your fellow cultivators if you are not doing it in order to get famous or rich or to make people respect and praise you. The Sharangama Sutra says, If you recite and uphold the Sharangama Mantra until you gain skill and can make it function, then 84,000 Vajra Treasury Bodhisattvas and their retinues or followers will always stay near you and protect you, so that everything you hope for will come true. But the demon kings never give up searching for a hole, so they can give you more trouble than you can handle. In the past, Great Master Hongren, the fifth patriarch, was cultivating in Hubei in East Mountain. He upheld the precepts strictly and cultivated with unusual intensity. Once, when a group of bandits surrounded the city of Hubei, Great Master Hongren could bear it no longer and decided to save the people in that city. He came down the mountain and walked into that city. As soon as the bandits saw Great Master Hongren coming, they were terrified, dropping their armor and weapons, and fled. Why? Because the Great Master Hongren came alone into the city, the bandits saw an army of heavenly generals and heavenly troops clad in golden armor. It was as if the gods themselves had come down to earth, all donning golden armor and carrying jeweled swords and other awesome weapons. That's what caused the bandits to retreat in such haste. And so, without the use of a single knife, spear, or arrow, he routed the bandits. 
It was because Great Master Hongren recited the Shurangama mantra that the bandits found him so terrifying. You could say that it was a manifestation created by the Vajra Treasury Bodhisattvas, or you could say it was an awesome virtue of the Great Master Hongren that frightened them. That a cultivator was able to frighten the bandits into retreat without the use of a single soldier or weapon is the verification of his genuine skill. How else could there have been such a response in the way? Shakyamuni Buddha proclaimed the Shurangama Mantra in order to protect all of us who have brought forth the initial resolve to study the way, to aid us in attaining samadhi, to help us be at peace in body and mind, and to keep us out of trouble. Therefore, we should never forget this Dharma. We should recite it and uphold the Shurangama Mantra with single-minded sincerity. By doing so, we are helping to perpetuate the Buddha Dharma, to keep the proper Dharma long in the world. In Master Hua's final commentary to the Shurangama Sutra, he said the following, By listening to the Shurangama Sutra, we have come to understand a lot of Buddha Dharma. There is inconceivable merit and virtue in this. That is why it was said that the merit and virtue of filling the space of the ten directions with the seven precious things and making an offering of them to the Buddhas is not as great as that of explaining the Shurangama Sutra. Now that we have finished explaining the Shurangama Sutra, your suffering has come to an end and my toil has also ended. Why? Because we don't have to work so hard. In the future, when you practice the Bodhisattva path, there may be more suffering, but you will endure it willingly. It will not be forced upon you by others. You yourself are willing to accept those troubles. Therefore, we should make the Bodhisattva resolve and practice the Bodhisattva path. I hope that everyone who has heard the Sharangama Sutra lectured will make the Bodhisattva resolve. I'll say it again. No matter whether you are a god, a human being, an asura, a hell being, a hungry ghost, or an animal, you must all resolve to become enlightened. Don't be confused anymore. One who is enlightened is a Buddha, and one who is confused is a living being. Now we all hope to become enlightened a little sooner. So now that we've come to the end of this very important and very long podcast, and we've accumulated all this merit and virtue, we need to think about the dedication of this merit and virtue. And we can now think about all the 180,000 families uh, that have lost somebody to coronavirus recently. Um, there's still millions of people that die of malaria every year. There's millions of people that are starving to death right now at this moment. There are millions of families that have been affected by racial injustice and criminal justice uh, abuse. And so if you can stretch your mind and stretch your heart to wrap all of the beings in the world that are suffering in the embrace of your love and dedicate your merits to them, that would be the greatest use of your mental effort. And if you are a Buddhist, uh, I know this is a Buddhist podcast, and so I would hate to muck it up with my political views, but there's a very, very saintly human being who just passed away, whose name is Michael Brooks. And this man was a online broadcaster, but he was also a brilliant author and journalist. And if you are a Buddhist, that you value compassion, you value generosity, you value education, and you value the truth. And so I would be very surprised if you were somebody that did not think of themselves as on being on the left and being a progressive. But uh, this very legendary person who it was only a couple years older than me, he was only 37, 
He had his own YouTube channel called The Michael Brooks Show, and he was also a guest host uh, or a co-host on The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. And if you really want to have some valuable uh, political information and, and just a different perspective on what it means to be a progressive in the United States and, uh, and really have a globally you know, oriented and enlightened viewpoint on, pol- on politics and current affairs, then I would suggest you go look back at his catalog of, of videos because this, we just lost a true bodhisattva. Uh, he was extremely spiritual, and he was extremely dedicated to making the world a better place. And so I dedicate this podcast to the memory of Michael Brooks, and we're going to keep the fight going, the, the fight for justice and equality and uh, economic uh, transformation and uh, awareness of the struggles of others. We, ha- we need to keep this movement going, and that's intrinsically uh, tied to the Buddhist path. So I love you all. Please take good care of yourselves and others. And I hope to see you all on the other side of this coronavirus nightmare. Namo Amidabas.